We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The shooting, the violence, that is a problem and has been a problem for quite some time. On the morning of September 11, 2001, the Western world woke up to a nightmare, a novel approach to warfare, mass murder of innocent civilians as a military tactic. On the morning of March 11, 2004, there were nearly simultaneous coordinated bombings against the commuter train system of Madrid, Spain, three days before Spain's general elections. Those explosions killed 191 people and injured more than 1,800. Then on the morning of July 7, 2005, four Islamic extremists separately detonated three bombs in quick succession aboard the London underground trains across the city and later a fourth on a double-decker bus in London. Fifty-two civilians were killed. Over 700 more were injured in those attacks. And there's more. November 26 through 29, 2008 in Mumbai, India, Ten Pakistani men stormed a number of buildings simultaneously yet again in Mumbai, killing 164 innocent people. On October 31st, 2015, just after departing from the Egyptian resort of Sharm el-Sheikh, ISIL's Egypt affiliate said it was behind the downing of a Russian passenger plane, Metrojet 9268, killing all 224 again totally innocent people on board. Thursday, November 6th, it goes on, at least 43 were killed and more than 200 wounded in a double suicide attack on a civilian neighborhood. Once again, in Beirut, Lebanon, the bombers struck during rush hour in an apparent bid to maximize the civilian death toll. The blasts are seen as an ISIL attack against the Lebanese political movement Hezbollah. This was the second time in two weeks Islamic State took credit for targeting its enemies outside Syria with deadly attacks on civilians. And of course, late in the evening, November 13, 2015, in Paris. Again, there were many simultaneous attacks, again on strictly civilian targets. 129 were killed. Over 300 were injured. Of course, the Western world and many Muslim, Arab, and Persian nations are resolved in efforts to destroy ISIS. And in order to to most effectively deal with a current crisis, it is essential to understand the historic roots of a crisis, the context from which these terrorists arise. 
A number of months ago, there was an ISIS-produced video in which they exuberantly and triumphantly bulldozed through an invisible yet literal line in the sand, something called the Sykes-Pico line, which was arbitrarily drawn and slapped down on the former Ottoman Empire in 1915, a hundred years ago, by the victorious French forces, just during what was then called the Great War. Rage among many of the people of the former Ottoman Empire, which is now known as Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Arabian Peninsula, and North Africa. That is the former Ottoman Empire, and that's where these terrorists are coming from. That has continued since the region was carved up by the Western powers after the Great War in 1919 through 21. Interesting, that region happens to be the source of the power of ISIS. It all started with the end of the First World War. That war never, ever ended horribly. The killing continues. It was 100 years ago that the Great War started now known as World War I. They certainly didn't call it that then. It was known as the Great War because it was really, really big and got way out of control, and it was just huge, huge losses. The war started in 1914 and ended in 1918, or did it? Our guest today, Michael Moran, will talk about reasons that we should understand that the war didn't really end. An awful lot of it is still going on. The very same struggles, the very same conflicts. Well, Michael Moran, thanks for being, being with us on the show today. Michael, are you there? I am here. How are you? I'm okay. Mike Moran is the New York-based vice president of global risk analysis at Control Risks, the Global Political Integrity and Security Risk Consultancy, and he's had senior positions in some of the world's leading financial policy and news gathering organizations. And Mike Moran is the author of The Reckoning, Debt, Democracy, and the Future of American Power, and co-author of the 2012 book, The Fastest Billion, The Story Behind Africa's Economic Revolution, a third book, The Great Divide on Income Inequality Around the World at the anniversary of the start of the First World War. He writes the Unraveler blog for GlobalPost.com and is a frequent contributor to Foreign Policy, Slate, Bloomberg, and other outlets. Well, again, Michael Moran, thanks very much for being with us. Well, people across Europe and the U.S. were dancing in the streets when the Great War, the horrible, incredibly bloody Great War, came to an end in 1918. Uh, our guest argues it never truly ended, but that specific conflict still goes on a hundred years later. Well, Michael, the actual shooting in the First World War did not begin until the guns of August in 1914, but the bloodshed did not suddenly erupt out of nowhere. Likewise, there was not a clean break between the 19th and 20th centuries as January 1900 rolled in. Would you, if you could please, paint a picture of some of the context of how the Great War came to be. I mean, there were the European monarchies and the dynasties of the 19th century. They were in full regalia as the First World War started. Tell us about the world as 1914 opened 100 years ago. Well, what you had is a um, the end of 
um, and a relative period of peace in Europe that it, it really began with the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. There were strikingly few wars between the great powers um, in Europe uh, between then and 1914. There was one large one between France and Germany in the 1870s, um, which had a lot of, there was a lot of um, uh, resentment in France and Germany about that war. Uh, as the First World War began. But by and large, it had been a period of peace um, managed by diplomats. Um, there, of course, was also the competition all over the globe, um, whereby European nations were, uh, were, were taking territory uh, as colonies. Um, you had the unification of both Italy and Germany during this period, from a period where they had been broken up into smaller states and kingdoms, and so these uh, places suddenly wanted to get in on the act in 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 terms of having their their seat at the big table and also having colonies around the world. So, as the as the century changed, there was a lot of competition, and it translated itself into competition uh, in terms of an arms race as well, particularly with uh, naval arms. And there was all kinds of uh, self-protective measures, alliances being formed, such that, uh, well, it reminds me kind of 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 mutual assured destruction that we saw in the 1960s as a policy of people, you know, different countries lining up on one side and others on the other side so that it could hold the peace. Not a very peaceful peace, mind you, but there were all these different, uh, the Triple Entente and the Triple Alliance. Who who were those characters? Well, you had on the one side um, the imperial German Empire, this, right. this conglomeration of states that had, had come together in the 1870s to become Germany, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is basically everything from uh, the Russian border through Austria. Austria and Hungary were the dominant powers, but they included Romania, what we now know of as Czech, the Czech, Slovak, Romania, Bulgaria, etc. Those those states um, on one side and. And then on the other side, you had the British and the French and the Russians. Um, the British and the French, um, there was a relationship. Literally, uh, the, the Russian czar and the uh, King of England were related. Um, the French were a, um, a republic by that point, but were the um, kind of, uh, had converted from the long-term rivals of the British into the, into the allies uh, by virtue of the fact that they were, they were also a democracy. So... Uh, on the sidelines was the United States, which was another power that was coming into its own. Um, and interestingly, as the First World War started in Europe, um, the big uh, headlines in the United States were about a different war, the one with Mexico, um, or the, what, what they thought might become a war with Mexico. There were all sorts of problems along the border of Mexico, which was going through its own revolution at the time. Mm. And uh, most American eyes, were, if, they, if they were focused on anything outside the country, were focused there. So they re- weren't really focused on what was going on over there. It didn't really matter particularly to Americans, or at least that was the uh, the perception. If you just tuned into the show, our guest is Michael Moran. We're talking about, uh, did the First World War ever end? Did it end in 1918? It started 100 years ago this year. I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, commemorations. And, uh, you know, there, as part of what was going on there, you talked about the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had a lot of effect on the Balkans, the, the, where poor Franz Ferdinand, the, the heir apparent to the uh, throne of uh, Aust- the Austria-Hungarian Empire, had the misfortune of driving down the wrong street, providing the assassin an easy target. But there were... All right, we got the Balkans there, which uh, I'll probably miss something. There's uh, 
Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, Herzegovina, uh, Macedonia, I believe. There were wars there in the 1990s. Were they related? Was there any similarity between what happened in you know the 19-teens and the 1990s? No, yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of unhappy uh, marriage that was known as Yugoslavia uh, for much of the 20th century was an, an attempt to create a state that could kind of tamp down the ethnic rivalries and, in some cases, religious rivalries that existed in this in in those Balkan states, um, all of whom had territorial claims on the others, all of whom uh, had uh, memories of massacres going back into medieval times that they uh, commemorated with national holidays. The Yugoslav state, which became a communist state, of course, during, after World War II, um, essentially was as if it was like a frozen pond. Um, the Serbs dominated it. Um, they kept all those national uh, sentiments under wraps and frozen, and in the 1990s, when the communist uh, bloc collapsed, that began to thaw. And as it thawed, those nationalisms came to life, almost as if they were still fully formed um, on the eve of World War I. Um, the virulent Serbian nationalism, which had also been frozen during the, during the Yugoslav period, came to fruition again. Croat uh, nationalism did, so as did, um, in many cases, some of the Macedonian-Bulgarian rivalries. So there was all sorts of stuff that sprung forth. And you can see this all over the planet. Um, things that um, began to come apart in World War I, a kind of an old world, imperial order, monarchic, um, elite-driven societies in Europe that uh, essentially ran the world for a period of centuries, began to lose their grip um, slowly, first on their, on their backyards and their, and their colonial possessions, and eventually, um, in the case of, the Soviet, uh, of Russia, um, uh, on their own people, um, and these these uh, you know kind of political currents and ethnic uh, rivalries also coincided with an enormous period of uh, social uh, upheaval, with including uh, movements for women's rights, a rediscovery of Islam in the Middle East, a um, enormous movement in labor uh, to to demand rights of collective bargaining, etc. So there was, it was a period of enormous upheaval that um, these old-school empires and governments just simply couldn't manage. Yeah, and we don't see very many real monarchies today, uh, but there's still uh, certainly empires. The German Empire crumbled. They had, they had states in, uh, in Africa, I believe in China, uh, all over the place, but and, and the French Empire certainly collapsed onto itself, and, and as did the, uh, the sun finally set on the British Empire. And in your, so those changes were made, but here we are now, and in your Global Post article, you, you argue that although the war started in 1914 and came to an armistice in 1918, which is a little bit different from an actual victory by any one side or the other, as you say, the idea that World War I can be viewed merely between 1914 and 1918 is absurd. You say it is the war that has never ended. Now, that's quite, well, a, let, that's quite a statement. Let, Germany surrendered, France, Britain, and the U.S. triumphed. No? Well, you could put it that way, but then um, in the siege, of the, had, the way that, um, that uh, surrender was handled by particularly by France and Germany, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, by France and um, Britain, yeah. uh, were, was the rise of Adolf Hitler, the resentment that was created 
by the harshness of the terms of, of essentially surrender by Germany created hyperinflation, literally starvation in yes. Germany. Yes. It um, hived off enormous territories in the eastern part of the country um, and took and gave to France for, for a period of a uh, decade or more uh, the most productive region of the western part of Germany called the Ruhr. Um, all these things were, you know, essentially time bombs that, that um, mm-hmm. helped make sure that the demo- democratic government that was put in place after the, the Kaiser was kicked out in Germany was a failure. Um, it couldn't manage its economy. It couldn't, it couldn't talk to its own people um, about why Germany was expected to pay reparations that were crushing it. Um, in, in effect, it had been stripped of all its colonies, all of its self-dignity, and the worst-case scenario actually came to came to pass in that a kind of demagogue was able to take advantage of that in those conditions and rise to power. So it's it's not at all an exaggeration to say that World War II grew directly yes. out of World War One's failed um, uh, peace treaty, and that in fact the Cold War <laughs> that that raged until only a decade and a half ago. Um, was a direct result of this failure to come to terms with how wars end. And do they ever end? I mean, certainly uh, the the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 was a precursor to the First World War as well. There were a lot of, you know, there was anger, resentment, uh, the territory of Alsace and Lorraine going between France and Germany. And, you know, people have asked, okay, World War II, we can understand, you know, the people of Germany were devastated. They were completely blamed for the war, although really it was a war between a number of empires. They got beaten, so they, you know, got smashed in the end. Why why did Hitler choose to invade Poland in 1939? Did that relate to the outcome of the Versailles Treaty, the ending of the First World War? Sure. I mean, you know, the entire territory of Poland was was Imperial Germany. It was carved. It, it, what in effect had happened was they carved the territory of Poland out of um, areas of eastern uh, Germany, um, which again, well, you know, as with uh, Alsace-Lorraine in the earlier war between the French and the Germans, created a, a kind of rallying cry for the nationalists in Germany. Mm. Um, the it's it's worth remembering that it wasn't just the Germans that invaded Poland; they split it in half. Stalin and Hitler, when they invaded, um, the, the Russians took the uh, eastern half, and the, they met the Germans in the middle. Ultimately, the Germans betrayed them and attacked the Soviet Union. Uh, and and so you know Poland was in a terrible situation, um, a historic nation that that had disappeared from the map after the Napoleonic War and then reemerged in a very uncomfortable position between two angry gigantic powers. Um, but I mean when you when you talk about the fact that the, the war didn't end, you really have to look at the bigger um, reasons. I mean World War One was the first war in which civilian casualties outnumbered military casualties. As enormously, um, you know, murderous as the trenches of World War One turned out to be, it was civilians that suffered most of the casualties. And that has n- unfortunately become the template uh, for wars in the future, whether you're talking about civil conflict in Africa, World War Two, even the Iraq War. Enormously more civilians died in the Iraq War than American or, um, or militant fighters. So, World War One set the pace for a terrible new reality of war, um, and and it crumbled and it caused the crumbling of empires that still reverberate to this day, including, um, you know, the Ottoman Empire, for instance. Right, uh, Al Qaeda still refers to the Ottoman Caliphate as something it wants to reinstate. Um, this is a, another result of World War One. Uh, 
um, the Russian empire's collapse still kicks off violence. We just saw last week uh, a bomb in what used to be called Stalingrad, now right. Volgograd, um, by Muslims who resent the what, it, what essentially was the um, long rule of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the entity that came out of World War I, over them. So, I mean, this goes on and on and on. All around the world, we see the reverberations of unfinished business from World War I. Mm. Well, they say generals always fight the last wars, and certainly uh, they did. I mean, in the beginning, the British thought, well, we have horses, we have a great cavalry. That'll uh, help us win. <laughs> Didn't work at all, of course. But, uh, you know, as you say, the, the First World War was the first mechanized war. So what results did that aspect of the war bring us, and in what ways is that lovely tradition still with us? Is it the, you know, the, the fact that... Uh, well, civilian casualties are just to be expected now, and that uh, you know civilian populations uh, are somehow unbelievably now legitimate targets. Was that not the case prior to that? I mean, it seemed like maybe that it was just soldiers that was kind of the the rule, the protocol of a war that just you know combatants were dying. But uh, it, it seems that uh, I don't know if it's part of the fact that it was so mechanized. Uh, has something to do with uh, the fact that uh, so many civilians are dying in, in other wars since then. Yeah, absolutely, because um, the move, the quick movement of troops, troops used to have to march here and there, and some of them would be on horses, but most of your your infantry marched to and fro. Yeah. Napoleon's infantry marched into Russia, and a l- very little of them got out, but they did it on foot. Mm. Um, that meant that there was a certain degree of of deference given to civilians. They might even avoid towns in some cases. Now, you know, obviously civilians through the ages have been have been um, murdered in warfare um, and abused in warfare, and this was used to be what was called plunder, um, you know, uh, rape and pillage, essentially. Um, but it wasn't on the mass scale that things like artillery um, and the quick movement of troops with, with rail, rail lines, um, in, in effect, which would encircle entire regions, um, and leave um, armies that were surrounded to fend for themselves in areas of civilians, sometimes not their own nationality. Inevitably, what are they going to do when they get hungry? They're going to take everything possible from those civilians, and somebody raising an objection, that civilian is going to get killed. Um, so it changed the, the movement, the quickness of the war, the existence of things like machine guns and artillery, and then eventually tanks and aircraft, None of which were used very well in World War One, mm. with the possible exception of the machine gun, um, but all of which existed and changed the nature of the war. It made it, uh, it made death a much less romantic thing for the soldiers themselves. It made them have to live day in and day out with the carnage of war, and they became, I think, numbed to it, to an, to a degree that also added to the to the kind of disregard for civilian life. We're talking with Michael Moran about uh, the First World War, how it never really ended. And in, in a few of the books I've read about the, the Great War, the First World War, uh, you know, young people, young men in particular, were just dying to fight the war. They were lining up. They wanted to get in there, a sense of adventure, a sense of glory. Uh, they wanted to get off the farms that were really— you know, get out of a, a 19th century existence into something exciting. I, I wonder if that's still the case, if people uh, still uh, see the, the glory of war uh, after uh, the First World War. I wonder if it, if it changed anything at all. I mean, there, were, there was that poetry at the end, uh, 
for example, the Dulce and Decorum Est Pro Patria Mori. I forget who the author of that was, that it's not. War is not a pretty thing. So perhaps that's one thing that changed as a result of the First World War. What, what yes, absolutely. I, I think um, what you see today is still a passion to serve. Right. Um, but the idea that war itself is glorious has, has gone out the window in, in all but the most insane. Um, I do a lot of work with the U.S. military. Um, there's no one, I know this sounds like a cliche, but there's no one who hates war more than someone who has uh, commanded troops in war and watched people go and die, and I, I really right. believe that is true. Oh, like um, but yeah. what, in particular, what World War One did, and this was particularly sad for the British and the French and other combatants, you know, before um, World War One, units within uh, an army were derived from single places. So you would go and you'd round up a unit from, let's, if we, we, we bring it to an American context, you know, Iowa's 6th Congressional District would create five or six divisions, okay? Those five or six divisions might even get sent to the same side of the part of the front. And when the Germans attacked that particular part of the front, every young man in the Irish 6th Sixth congressional district is killed. It was devastating. Localized um, units within militaries, not far from where I'm sitting, is the um, the famous monument to the Fighting 69th of the New York Infantry um, near Central Park, and it was similarly an, an infantry unit which was designed in for the Civil War, fought in the Spanish-American War. In both cases, got bloodied but not wiped out. But in World War One, got nearly wiped out. Um, and uh, there's a famous Jimmy Cagney movie about that. Um, but in, a, in effect, that the, the reality that entire villages in England, entire villages in France lost all their male population in these wars made armies change and, and essentially modernize. So in order to sustain warfare, armies realized they needed to have a national army that intermingled people regardless of the region they came from, they could no longer rely on the comradeship, camaraderie of being from the same town or region or state. They had to rely on training and a more professional um, and somewhat less um, humane, in fact, uh, approach to warfare, where, where soldiers were regarded as almost, almost like automatons. They had to listen because they were told to do something by a superior, not because someone they admired from their village or region mm. had been named commander. That changed completely after World War One. But uh, so there, some things did change, and uh, I noticed in that propaganda film, uh, Hitler's propaganda film, it had uh, of the, of a Nuremberg rally. It had uh, people coming from all different villages and shouting out their region of what became Germany uh, at, at that rally. <laughs> and then I guess you know, then they had to follow the orders and uh, be as a large unit. So that's that's one thing that changed. But you say in geopolitical terms, the First World War set in motion changes as you say, they continue to this day in the 21st century to remake our planet. Before the war, as you've mentioned, one of the big empires was the Ottoman Empire. People are largely not aware of what the Ottoman Empire was today. Talk about the results of the war on, on what the Ottoman Empire was and how it might relate to much of the bloodshed happening to this very day. Well, the Ottoman Empire was uh, based in Constantinople, which we now call Istanbul, which was the um, the seat of the Sultan, and the Sultan essentially, and the Caliph, Caliph being the mm -hmm. is the high the high um, ruler of Islam, 
um, were, ruled over a, a, of an area that ranged all the way from Iraq to Morocco, with some exceptions in the middle for countries that had um, gotten their independence. But I think um, what we see today in the Middle East, in many ways, is the result of European powers going in and taking bits and pieces of the Ottoman Empire after um, World War One. For instance, Iraq used to be called, um, I think it was called the um, Vilayet of Basra, which meant that it was, Basra was southern Iraq, essentially. So it was, it was a little more um, kind of homogeneous than Iraq is today, where you have Kurds and Sunnis and Shia. But the uh, European power it, of, the, of the moment in that part of the world, the British, created a, a country called Iraq. They created a king and put him on the throne of Iraq. They created a country called Jordan. They put a king on that throne. All of them, of course, uh, beholden to the British for their power. Similarly, they backed the, the Saudi dynasty to take uh, Arabia. Um, and, and the French did similar things in places like Algeria and Morocco. So what you ended up with was uh, the kind of arbitrary borders that to this day still plague places like Iraq or places in sub-Saharan Africa, where, um, you know, essentially maps were drawn according to the convenience of the colonial power, and it may very well have cut right through the middle of some tribal group, or it might have um, literally been the cause of wars ever since in places like Sudan or, uh, or tension places like Nigeria, um, which, which, you know, to this day in the Middle East are, are major, major issues. The obvious one, of course, is the consistent uh, kind of promises that were made to both sides after World War One, the both the Arab and the and the Jewish side in World War One, that they would have a state in what is the Holy Land. Um, that that the most famous document on that in that conflict, the Balfour Declaration, is a direct uh, a direct conflict, indirect conflict with promises made by British military commanders to Arabs for a state in exactly the same territory, and that continues today to be known as the Arab-Israeli conflict. Absolutely amazing. So much came out of the First World War that people don't even think about. It's, it's oftentimes kind of a, a forgotten war, but the realities, the uh, after-effects, the ripples go on and on and on. And, I, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire lost because they allied themselves with, with the Germans, and uh, today's battles between the Shia and the Sunni that we hear about every single day, tremendous bloodshed going on in the streets. How did either the First World War or the, the, the alleged peace that came at the end of the First World War impact this seeming, uh, seemingly endless, uh, super bloody reality? Might it have been different? And, and it's good to look at history, you know, what would have happened, what might have happened. It's, it's not a bad thing to do. What do you think, Michael Moran, might have been different between the two Muslim sects, Sunni and Shia, if not for this First World War? Well, you know, one of the things that was decided after the First World War, um, when they called a peace treaty, is they, they were very selective about who was allowed to come and get a seat at the table. A lot. Another thing people don't know is that you know, far more Indians died in the First World War than Americans. Um, India, India, as part of the British Empire, sent millions of people to the front. Millions, um, and so did all French colonies. Many, many. You'll see pictures in the in the trenches of Europe of um, of black colonial troops from French Africa. 
um, and many, many of them died in World War I, too. Yet, their nations were not recognized as such, and so there was no representative from uh, Mali or from India or from uh, the, you know, the reaches of Algeria at the peace treaty. Uh, so this kind of colonial world that existed, and in many ways was part of the problem that led to World War I, mm. was kept in place by the winners. The only real difference after World War I was that they split up between them the German, uh, the German and Ottoman uh, territories. Um, so uh, Tanzania was taken over, it used to be Tanganyika, was German, was taken over by the British, and so on. These, these things essentially pushed off into the future, as it turns out, about a half a century into the future, the, rec- the moment of reckoning for these European countries who could then no longer, by the, by the 50s and 60s, realistically control um, these countries and prevent them from going independent. But all of these things, had they happened earlier, would have allowed these, these internal conflicts to play out very differently. They, and there wouldn't have been the excuse that's used in these countries to this day for their internal problems that, oh, this is all the result of a colonial uh, mistreatment and a colonial overhang. In many ways, that's Mm. a terrible... uh, There is obviously truth in that, but it's also a terrible excuse for misgovernance and tyranny in all sorts of uh, areas of Africa and and for many years in Asia as well. Fighting colonialism. I mean, heck, it's... uh it's been used very effectively by the Castro regime in Cuba, just having the the uh, specter of colonial United States hanging over it. It's been great to hold them together. Who knows what would happen without that uh, old, old threat from the, the early 60s, but they've been using that. And so it sounds like some of the uh, uh, nations, if you will, uh, that may not have actual you know countries mapped out for them, uh, are still using some of the uh, anger at the at the colonial powers to uh, justify their attacks on one another. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you know the the you know collapse of empire, which began with World War One, right. um, created some of the most difficult um, and potentially dangerous conflicts that are still with us today. And the best example of that is the India Pakistan conflict. Oh. Um, there's two nuclear states. They are absolutely, uh, they're, they're more than rivals. They are literally enemies. Yeah. Um, each of them spent wastes enormous amounts of money um, ignoring their own problems and building uh, a military designed to, to defeat the other. Um, and this is all the result, really, of the unraveling of the British Empire that began in World War I but really took off after World War II when the Second War really bankrupt the British um, and even and, and no one could hide any longer the fact that they couldn't hold this colonial kingdom together. So um, the way that that particular one worked out is a is a Muslim state uh, on right. two sides of a of a largely Hindu dominated state, and they've never been able to reconcile that. Um, uh, similarly, as I already mentioned, the the in, the, the um, conflict in um, the conflict in um, the Middle East has its roots there, and even in Northern Ireland. I mean, remember, in the middle of World War I was the Easter Rising in 1916, um, which led to a treaty which split Ireland between the Republic in the South and Northern Ireland in the North, and that conflict raged on until very recently. So um, the war literally left um, un- unsolved um, mm. time bombs all over the planet. And I had heard that uh, it was great to... Uh for for the 
Britain, when they were having problems with, with Ireland uh, seeking independence, that they uh, could uh, sublimate that and control that by uniting <laughs> Ireland and the Irish people, getting them as part of the British Empire into the war, kind of putting off, sweeping under the rug the problem that eventually would have to be dealt with. And one has to wonder, you know, these the lines of Iraq, uh, various different places in the Middle East were drawn at the Versailles uh, uh, Treaty when, when only the big powers were able to participate in it. You know, one wonders if these internal conflicts, these, these nationalistic uh, uh, impulses, uh, if they had been let alone and not overshadowed by this monstrous war, might it be more peaceful now? Would we see? We, I imagine we see different lines on the uh, maps of the world nowadays. Yeah, you know, it's it's possible that the war could have ended more with a, a more logical uh, treaty. I don't know that we could have avoided the war. Um, the old order was the old order. It it set its own logic. It marched itself right to oblivion. But what came out afterwards, I think. Um, it, to the great frustration of the American president of the day, Woodrow Wilson, mm-hmm. was a world that looked an awful lot like a winner's world, um, rather than the world that he had envisioned with right. this League of Nations that would that would prevent a, a war. This, remember, was supposed to be the war to end all wars. In fact, it was the war to create the template for the rest of the wars that we've had since. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing that we shouldn't uh, forget here is the perhaps most significant um, development uh, that took place uh, as a result of World War One was the emergence of the United States as the world's dominant power. Even though the United States uh, quickly tucked back into its shell after World War One and said, "Well, we've done that; we won't do that again," um, the reality was we were the um, we were now the financial powerhouse, the industrial powerhouse of the world. Even if we didn't want yet to be the military powerhouse, and we were funding the reconstruction and the continued operations of the French and the, and the English. And in fact, we were the ones who ultimately stepped in to try to give the Germans a break from reparations when they were on the edge of starvation. So it became a world mitigated and mediated by America, and a very reluctant America, who, who only got involved at the last minute, who only got involved when things were about to come apart at the seams. Um, people see a lot of echo there today, in the rise of China, um, kind of, kind of parroting the rise of Germany in the in the early part of the 20th century, it's uh, it's somewhat resentful. It wants its place at the at the, mm-hmm. at the big table. Mm-hmm. You've got the old power, Britain, uh, trying to hold off the, the the Germans. Where here you have the old power, the United States, being very defensive and thin-skinned with the Chinese. So people do see this um, interesting kind of echo of of those days. I think that. Analogy is interesting and fun to talk about. I don't think it's particularly uh, good <laughs> from a, from an analytical standpoint these days. I think it's a little too simplistic. Um, for instance, the British and the Germans had no particular interest in the other one uh, prospering, whereas the Chinese and the Americans are joined to the hip in terms of prosperity. Um, we one one goes down, we both go down. Mm, true. Um, yeah. So it's a different world. In some ways, in some ways, that can be used for good. <laughs> But um, you know, one thing you look at over the over the decades is that if there's a way to screw it up, human beings figure it out. That's true. That is true. That's one of the problems I have with nuclear power, quite frankly. And if it worked for humans, maybe it'd be a little bit safer. If you just tuned into the show, our guest is Michael Moran. We're talking about did the First World War ever really end? 
and uh, in a lot of ways uh, it didn't. You know, we had a a very effective ordering principle in the world called imperialism. I mean, the world was all divided up. It was controlled. You know, it was these these small uh, national struggles were impossible. They couldn't do anything because the the empire had all the money, had all the guns, and it was a pretty uh, pretty effective system. And and as you pointed out, you know, in the Balkans, uh, there was a a leader, uh, Marshal Tito, who held Yugoslavia together as as a dictator but then after that it all kind of fell apart and so i wonder you know i'm thinking about the struggle for independence in vietnam for example and a lot of the the smaller nations you know the struggle for the right to self-govern didn't end with the apparent end of the british french russian and german empires in 1918 uh so they've had that sentiment for and, and wish for a long time and perhaps I wonder how the First World War really did affect that. I think it, do you agree that maybe it encouraged the smaller nations to to want to, you know, overthrow their colonial masters? No, absolutely. And, you know, this, this trend hasn't ended either. And, you know, when you write a, a column for somebody like Global Push, you can't write a, a column that gets all this stuff into it. It's a very <laughs> right. detailed, it's a very long story. But one of the things you'll see this year is uh, two parts of Europe that are part of countries that I still regard as empires, Spain and the United Kingdom, um, will be voting for independence. Scotland in the United Kingdom will vote on a referendum to whether it should be independent from the U.K., and Catalonia in Spain will Mm -hmm. vote to see if it should split away from what is essentially a Castilian empire called Spain, where Andalusia, the Basques, Catalonia, Galatians, and others are called Spain. We think of it as Spain. It's been there a long time. But just because they don't control Latin America anymore, it doesn't mean it's still not an empire if you're a Catalonian, right? Yes. So all across Europe, um, you know, the, the kind of the coalescing of countries we now regard as countries um, ha- has its own internal um, dynamics. And the Russians, for instance, are still struggling with the question of whether Russia is what its borders say it is today. I'm sure Putin's idea of Russia includes Ukraine. Um, and it may include, and probably includes Belarus, and it may, and it may even include parts of the Balts, Baltic states, which would really piss those people off. Um, and clearly, there are a lot of people who are Muslim in southern Russia who don't regard their t- territory, Dagestan, Chechnya, Ossetia, as being part of Russia, but rather as potentially independent countries. So, this is a struggle that goes on and on and on, and it's not just Europe. It's the western part of China, where there are many Muslims. It's um, parts of India, where there are um, ethnic groups that don't speak anything like the dominant languages, etc. This struggle still goes on today. And one has to wonder if, say, the Soviet Union were still together, if, if, that, if things might be, <clears throat> in a way, better off. I don't think most of the people there uh, would think so. But, you know, b- before, there was no Soviet Union uh, before the First World War. I mean, in 1914, it was it was just the the Russian Empire. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Romanov dynasty and and some of the uh, ripples that may still be going on from the fall of the uh, of the Tsar. Yeah, I mean, what what we um, grew up, or at least if you're my age, I'm now fortunately 50. Um, but if you're my age, you grew up with this thing on the map big giant it was kind of pink or red or yeah, it was thing red. called the soviet union it was the biggest thing on the map yeah 
was a jig, giant blob undistinguished by ethnicity or anything. And in fact, when it collapsed, um, it, only then did people realize that there were giant areas of the Soviet Union that were Muslim, right. uh, places called Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Um, there were areas that were very traditionally non-Russian um, and not Muslim, so Armenians and Georgians. Um, so, and then you had, you know, the Balts, who had been essentially overrun by Russia uh, or the Soviet Union after World War II. Um, so that's Lithuania, uh, Estonia, Latvia. So this was a very complicated place, and that the conflicts within those places have been exacerbated. Um, just like, for instance, in Northern Ireland, where they're in those six counties that are now Northern Ireland, there is a Protestant majority there, right, mm-hmm. which regards itself as loyal to the United Kingdom rather than the Republic of Ireland to the South. In Russia, you've got some places in within Ukraine, within Latvia, within Kazakhstan, where there are so many ethnic Russians that um, there's no way that the country could could reorient its foreign policy or... For instance, Ukraine wanted to um, apply for membership of the European Union, and Putin basically stepped on that idea mm. and said, oh, no, it's not going to happen. Um, so there's this whole big power internal uh, conflict playing out within the borders of what we used to think of as this big red blob of the Soviet Union. And so uh, some of the dynamics that, that really came together rather bloodily in the First World War are still at it get people you know nations struggling you had the balkans all these different efforts ireland uh pakistan now i mean you, you get it's amazing how how pakistan's troubles now can be traced back to the first world war and then there's africa a big area of of development that china is really really active in uh, there's a lot of uh bloodshed still going on throughout africa and some of the, uh, you know, I, I wish I still had the old globe that I had growing up that had Africa all divided up into French West Africa, German Africa, uh, Tanganyika, as you say. What about, uh, you know, how the First World War effects are still going on in Africa, still alive? Yeah, I, I think what we see in Africa is um, their states struggling to to live within the the borders that they've they've been given. Um, and this is a very difficult thing. And one, I think, you know, one of the yes, things right. I noticed when I was researching that Global Post article um, was uh, on the First World War was that on the, the you know, eve of World War I, at, at the New Year's of uh, World War I, essentially, um, the, uh, the New York Times had an article about how two British colonies, one of them Muslim, one of them Christian, one called North Nigeria, one called South Nigeria, were going to be mm. slammed into one for I- administrative convenience. Yeah. And they would just call it Nigeria. Well, as you know, today, the north of Nigeria is a hotbed of um, Islamic anger, and um, it's got a lot of Christians in it as well. It's got plenty of people who don't want anything to do with conflict or violence, but there's a very uh, virulent group that is um, you know, unhappy with the current arrangement called Boko Haram, which um, is is essentially trying to, you know, spark a civil war in that country, and they have had uh, at least one civil war in their history, which was quite brutal. So, um, Nigeria is a state that's a classic example of even a fairly well governed colony, as the British colonies tended to be when compared to the Dutch or the French. Um, these decisions were not made for the on the sake of the colonial 
subjects. It was made for the empire. And, you know, I think of something a, a, an old mentor of mine once said. He said, you know, Michael, they don't make the canneries for the benefit of the fish. <laughs> That's a good point. And I'm sure the people uh, around the First World War got that as well and uh, are still getting that now. And I, I, we did mention a little bit about Iraq and Iran. They didn't exist as Iraq and Iran before the First World War, where there was borders drawn uh, in the uh, dividing up of the world in 1919? Well, Persia existed. Persia. Persia, the precursor to Iraq, and still today, most most Iranians would call themselves Persians. Right. Um, is an ancient empire, and its borders were largely as they are today. Uh-huh. Um, but the just to the just to the west, the Iraqi, uh, what we call Iraq today, would have been um, a you know, an essentially a a far outpost of the Ottoman Empire, and and the Ottoman states were called vilayets, and there were two vilayets in what is today Iraq. So in essence, Iran abutted this very huge and poorly governed and very in you know uh difficult to govern a vast empire called the ottoman empire which was um interest a tremendously interesting empire so on the one hand this was a uh islam was was the dominant religion it was the state religion per se but there were very very strict rules about the rights of christians jews and others uh not other non-muslims who were not to be abused? Who were, you know, of course, these things in any any Muslim, any um, any empire that large were sometimes honored and sometimes not. But by and large, um, huge areas of the Ottoman Empire uh, were regarded as places where Jews were often treated better, for instance, than they were in many in many European societies. Certainly, better than they are in Russia, where there were pogroms going on yeah. at that point, um, and um, it wasn't uncommon in those days for um, people who were driven out of Russia to find themselves in the Ottoman Empire, um, or Jews who were driven out of Russia uh, to find themselves in the Ottoman Empire. It was regarded as a fairly uh, safe place for, for minorities. Now that, when, when things shattered and came apart, um, those colonial empires, uh, you know, had their own rules on these things, and generally uh, repression was not based on religion in those days, although... Mm these colonial empires would favor one faction or one religion over another in order to control the population, um, the classic mm-hmm. divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the results of that you still see in Lebanon, where where um, they literally haven't taken a census there since 1931, because the rule there is that they have divided government very carefully between the three dominant religious and ethnic groups, persuasions, and if they take a new census and find out that that's all changed, Oops. a civil war could easily erupt <laughs> over the results of a census. So they just stick to that 31 division. Wow. Um, so these these kind of d- bizarre distortions, largely due to the way these borders were drawn after World War Two, after the collapse or World War One, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, persist to this day. Now I got to ask one thing. You know, there, there's the ongoing results and struggles that were never resolved in the First World War. It sounds like that a lot of the difficulties that we face today are not so much from the actual war itself, but from the settlement of the war, the Versailles Treaty, which obviously you know c- created the Second World War. Uh, but it, it's you know the the arbitrary drawing by the big powers. So how much of the blame? For today's struggles can be uh, pointed the finger at at the Versailles Treaty of 1919. Well, um, 
I think many, many, many problems that we're discussing are the result of the failed peace right. um, and the short-sightedness of the Germans and French in particular. Um, the French were, were, it were terribly ravaged during the First World War and I guess couldn't imagine that it would happen again only 20 years later. Mm. So they were determined to exact a pound of flesh, and the British uh, were aiding and abetting that effort. So I, I, in, that, in that sense, absolutely, it was the peace. But don't forget, the First World War also was the kind of cauldron in which we developed aerial bombardment, oh, yeah. submarine warfare, our, you know, advanced artillery tactics, the machine gun came to a, 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 its, its uh, age, fighter planes, um, armor-piercing bullets, um, gas warfare, mm-hmm. um, chemical warfare in some small ways, all of these, and, and, and perhaps most horribly, um, it was the first time really that Zeppelins and then aircraft were designed specifically so that you could fly over a city and drop bombs on civilians. Yeah. So um, in that respect, you can't blame the peace. <laughs> it was technology and the and the and the strange and horrible logic of war and and arm, armed conflict that has created a world where these things now are readily available in some forms to um, to ragtag groups who want to use them to further whatever their end is. Oh my goodness! Wow, this has been very uh, uh, revealing to look at uh, history. History isn't the past; it's it's still going on. Michael Moran. Uh, let's see. The best way to follow you is at the Unraveler blog, or that's right, the un- the Unraveler on GlobalPost dot com. Or you could um, you could spend a lot of money to get me to look at business risk for your corporation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, for control risks here in New York. I see. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, a lot of Americans died there as well. Thanks again, Michael Moran. All right. Thank you. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me. Every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud her boy's in line. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums rum coming everywhere, so prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware, we'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there, over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the ants are coming, the ants are coming, the drums drum coming everywhere, so prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware, we'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. 
Johnny showed the hun, you're a son of a gun. Hoist the flag and let her fly. Yankee doodle doo or die. Pack your little kit, show your grit, do your bit. Yankee to the ranks from the towns and the tanks. Make your mother proud of you and the old red, white, and blue. it never really was over over there and it continues to this day those nations that were denied any participation in shaping their future they're still angry and uh, their world was shattered back then Seven, seven. 